Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 41 of Unknown Orbits, Foundation by Isaac Asimov. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to focus on the highly acclaimed and famous series of books, Foundation, by Isaac Asimov, specifically the first set of books known as Foundation. We will not be talking about the later books. Quite honestly, neither one of us has read any of them. We're still waiting for the second season of the series to come out. Oh yeah, we're going to wait till the Apple TV series does another season so that we can get caught up that way. So I'm not going to try to encapsulate every plot point and detail of the initial Foundation book. So what we're going to be talking about is the very first part of the Foundation trilogy, Foundation. We're not going to be talking about Foundation and Empire or Second Foundation. That may be saved for a later podcast after we have read almost everything else on our list and when we have the time to sit down and actually read those additional massive volumes. So we're we're not going to get into excruciating detail about the plot, just kind of give an overview of what happens and what the initial Foundation is all about. Not so much explaining the details of the plot as explaining the situation in the books. So Foundation is a cycle of five sequential stories. This is a something of a fix-up from a number of stories that were originally published in the 1940s in Astounding Magazine. The main character is Harry Selden, who is a mathematician who has created the field of psychohistory. Now, psychohistory is a form of math that allows him to predict with some credibility the future of societies, the future of empires, large numbers of people, large movements of people. If we need to, we'll say that this doesn't exist. Right. So once he's developed this and he's run all of his calculations, he predicts that the galactic empire, which spans most of the galaxy, will fall within 300 years, and it'll take 30,000 years for it to be reestablished. He's immediately accused of treason for predicting that the empire is going to fall, and he's put on trial. In his trial, he puts forward the idea of creating something called Foundation, which would be a place far away on the furthest edges of the galaxy where all of the accumulated knowledge and technology of the empire would be gathered and stored so that once the empire falls, it would allow those people to rebuild the empire in only a thousand years. So they can't stop the empire from falling, but they can make the period of dark ages much, much shorter by not losing all of that knowledge and technology. 
So he's found guilty, and rather than being executed, so they would be a martyr, he's exiled to a planet called Terminus, which is way out on the farthest end of the galaxy, and he's allowed to go ahead and try to construct foundation, which he does. He brings a number of scientists and historians and any number of other specialists with him to Terminus, and they start building foundation out there. That's the first story. Then it flash forwards to 40 years after his death, where a recording that he made before his death is about to be unsealed, giving additional predictions of the future, which is a pattern that is throughout the rest of this book, where every so often a new Harry Selden speech will be unveiled that will give new predictions and will help guide the people of Foundation to continue their work and continue to try to rebuild the empire. What happens then is the neighboring solar systems begin to covet the technology that Foundation has, specifically nuclear technology. And Foundation initially has to fight them off. And what they wind up doing is creating a false religion that is based on science that they use to manipulate and control different populations. And there's a lot of diplomatic ebb and flow, a lot of plotting and skullduggery that happens throughout these next couple of books. Eventually, Foundation develops into a power to itself with its own military and ability to defend itself against aggression and to use its advanced technology and its religion to spread its influence throughout the galaxy. So that's the basic plot. It's a lot of plotting and scheming and each of the Harry Selden predictions that come out causes a certain amount of unbalance because some people don't like what he has to say or is predicting and resist against it. And some people are trying to follow what he says. It's an extremely complex story. I would say it's a very densely told story that spans great parts of the galaxy. Not saying anything against Foundation, I generally don't like these grand vista stories that take place across an entire galaxy that go on and on and on, like Dune. Though I think you disagree on whether or not Dune... Well, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But So you don't like space opera? I would say space opera is not the same. It's a story that travels places, but it's not about a huge area. I'm having a little difficulty expressing myself. To me, something like Foundation, the bigger it gets in scope, the more like a soap opera it is to me, and that bores me. Okay, I think we've had enough previous conversation where I think I know where you're coming from, that the stories that are highly dramatic in terms of interpersonal conflict and personalities is not your thing. Right. Especially if they're on a bigger scale. Yeah. Well, that certainly describes foundation. I mean, that's what it is. My criticisms of foundation are, first of all, I want to say, why should anybody read this book? Well, I think if you're a science fiction fan, you almost have to read this book, at least the first book, because it's such an important book. It was given the Hugo Award in 1966 for best all-time series. So it's got every award and validation that you could get in science fiction to say, this is a very important book. And it certainly was influential 
in its time. You know, it was readable. Parts of it I didn't like. Asimov, there's some things he does fine. There's some things he does not do well. And one of the things he does fine is talk about ideas. And there are some very interesting ideas, some very big ideas in this story. And he does a good job with that. And, you know, there's some people that think that's what science fiction should do. It should grapple with ideas. And this work certainly does that. But as a writer, I look at it and I say, geez, you know, sometimes the characters are indistinguishable. They're all middle-aged or old white guys. And it's like really hard to tell them apart sometimes. I think I had the same criticism with Nightfall. Yes. When we talked about Nightfall in a previous episode. Where's one of the best places to differentiate characters? It's in the dialogue. And he's not really known for realistic dialogue. No, he's not terribly good in that respect. And there's one part of the book that I really took exception to. There was this extremely important epic space battle that takes place. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And he doesn't describe the space battle. He has a bunch of people sitting around a room talking about the giant space battle that just happened. So that giant space battle... That was sure pretty impressive, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I'm really glad we won because it would have been bad if we didn't. Yeah, well, what about this guy and that guy and all these things that happened? Yeah, that's something, isn't it? I mean, that's how the most epic moment in the book potentially is handled is by a bunch of old white guys sitting around in a room talking about a giant space battle. I mean, that's just surrendering as a writer. Tell me if this is relevant. It reminded me of a famous story in vaudeville where they're doing a scene and one character turns to another and says, get me to the courthouse. And the other character just turns to the audience and says, here we are at the courthouse. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what he does in this book. But like I said, it's required reading, I think, as a science fiction fan. It's okay if you read it and you don't really care for it, or you only partially care for it. I totally understand if you don't. But He did invent a number of different things. He invented, to some degree, the idea of a future history. Um, What about Heinlein? Wasn't he earlier? Well, when did he start doing his future history? Um, We're talking, these stories started in 1941. Heinlein had the concept of a future history, but as I recall, he took a long time to work it out. I've got some ideas on what constitutes something being a future history or not. Yeah, we should probably get a good definition. To me, the most important thing that you need in order to be considered a future history is it should start with Earth. I could see somebody writing an exception to this, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So you should be saying, here we are in 1955 on Earth, and I'm going to start writing stories that take place in the future. 1995, 2001, 2250. So you're building a future history of Earth or the Earth Empire or the emigrants who leave Earth and find life elsewhere in the galaxy. And you're following the course of human history, of human evolution, of human development. Under that fairly strict requirement, Dune would not be a future history because There's really no mention, unless it's in one of the later books that I haven't read, there's no mention of Earth in Dune. It's a completely new, separate world that's well thought out. There's tons of great world building. That's one of its great triumphs. He's probably worked out tons of the history of all of this as part of that. So it has 
an elaborate history and backstory. But is that enough to make it a future history? Because that's just world building to me. Future history is you're grappling with the idea of what happens to man, what happens to us in the future, and not just going ahead one point in history and talking about that, but many points in future history that you're following a timeline, you're following a rise and fall of the human race or ascendancy of the human race or evolution of the human race. So you're saying the future history has to have been developed as an outline rather than having a bunch of stories that say things about the future. You want there to be a consistent outline that the writer then writes stories for. To me, that's a technical issue. What I'm talking about is content-related. What I'm thinking of is you're grappling with an idea. You're creating a theme, a speculation on the future of the human race. That's the scope that I think is needed in a future history is consistently coming back to that idea of how does man change? What forces does man run into out in the universe that force them to make choices? So it's about society, really. It's about human society. For instance, I'll give you an example. Like in Foundation, one of the things that Asimov introduces is mutation. He introduces a character called the Mule, who's a mutant, who has superior powers to the average person. And that becomes a part of the story of mankind, that now you've got mutations coming in and changing the course of history. So that's the sort of thing I think a writer who's writing a future history should be doing, is always coming back to that central question, how is man going to be 100 years from now, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, and on a timeline where you're not just stopping at one point in history, you're stopping at various points along the way and following up on that speculation. One of the reasons I feel this way is that I've published my first book, The Nowhere Navy, which takes place 100 years in the future. The sequel, I'm working on that currently, that's going to be also the same time period, 100 years in the future. But there's a third book that I'm planning to work on this year that will move another 100 years forward in this same universe. So I'm beginning to build a future history. This is my choice of what future history will be. And I'm grappling right now with questions of technology, questions of society, what technologies are going to come forth 200 years from now versus 100 years from now. How is society going to change in that period of time? What challenges are going to face mankind that are new? So as a writer, that's how I'm viewing a connected series of stories that I'm writing. And it's a connection that spans a good bit of time. So that's why I'm pitching this idea of a future history having to follow a theme and a timeline that relates directly to mankind itself. Okay, okay. You're putting me in mind of, you know, the perspective from 50,000 feet looking into our past. We have various ages and civilizations. So that scale. Right. If you did a, a reverse history story, you would go all the way back to the caveman days 
tens of thousands of years ago. And oh. then you would move into the Stone Age, and then you would move into the Bronze Age, and then you'd move into the Age of Steam. So you'd take themes about humankind. Like, let's say the theme was, how does new technology change society? And you could go back and follow the growth of man and his technology. And each stop along the way is a book or a story that touches on that theme. And you're continuing that theme all the way through to the present day. With the future histories, you're going from today forward. Yeah. So that's why I wouldn't consider doing a future history, but I would consider something like Cities in Flight a future history. Right. Which we've talked about on a recent podcast. I always felt that a future history was limiting. Of course, that depends on whether or not the writer is insisting that everything he does has to fit in there, like I believe Heinlein was doing. Well, I mean, how many of these future histories, like Foundation, started out as individual short stories? Oh, yeah. That were somehow loosely connected and then were brought together. I mean, we had several episodes where we talked about fix-up books, Yeah. which to me was a publishing phenomena of the 1950s when book publishing became a much bigger thing in science fiction, when there was a real market for science fiction books. Authors were like, hey, I've got these five stories that are kind of tied together loosely. Maybe I could rewrite them a little bit and have some linking stories, and voila, I've got a 100,000-page book that I can sell and make some money off of. So I think that's where a lot of this stuff came, was from a commercial impulse. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's marketing, really. So other examples that I came up with, just a couple future history series. One that I'm currently reading, Instrumentality of Mankind by Cordwainer Smith, which is definitely a interconnected series. Very wildly different stories, but there is a connecting thread there of technology. There's three stories, including two of his most famous stories, which tell the story of how the technology of interstellar travel develops, and they discover that space is highly dangerous and fatal. And in order to conquer space, they first take the step of creating people who can handle the mind-bending horror of space by physically altering them, and that's Scanners Live in Vain. But then at the end of that story, they discover a leapfrog that no longer requires that. And then you go to Game of Rat and Dragon, where they are now traveling through space without having to face the pain and suffering of interstellar travel. But they find, as they're going in between sections of space, that there's these creatures that attack them and try to destroy them. So that's a really good example, I think. As I mentioned previously, Cities in Flight by James Blish. That's definitely a future history. Some people think that Shape of Things by H.G. Wells, another movie, actually, that we talked about in a previous episode. A it, singular work that it, has. Yes, it's a more compacted future history because it just goes from the 1940s, 20 or 30 years into the future, and then there's another time jump after that to like 100 or so years in the future. But it fits because it is about the progress of man, how technology and society changes over the course of time. So I think that fits under my criteria. I've already dismissed Dune as not being a future history. Please feel free to disagree with me. The Psychotechnic League by Paul Anderson. I have not read it, but I've read descriptions of it, and it does sound fascinating. 
And then you mentioned Highland's future history. Yeah, which at some point he included it as an appendix to one of his books. Highland's future history was also nominated in 1966 for best series, but he lost out to Foundation. So those were some examples of future histories. I may be too constrictive in my definition. I don't know. But that's kind of what we do on this show. We come up with didactic definitions of things and maybe we piss off people in the process. I'm sorry if we do, but that's half the fun of doing a podcast is to allow yourself to be didactic. Perfectly willing to consider other opinions. So we've been dying to do this since we started this podcast is to kind of trash Isaac Asimov a little bit. I prefer the term demystify. There you go. We're going to take him down off his pedestal a little bit. Both of us, I think you would agree, we don't think he's a particularly great writer. We've already discussed some of the flaws of Foundation from a writing standpoint. He stopped writing... When did he stop writing fiction? The 1960s? Um, something like that. For a while. He Late came, 50s. He did come back to it. I would like to for this discussion, define my view of his writing skill. Please do. Please take charge here. Because I think it's an interesting argument in itself, if one wants to do this or not. He learned how to write to a certain level of competency, and he learned it really well to the point where I think he was selling, in some cases, like first drafts. That's how well he could write to that certain level, but he never wanted to write better than that. So that's a legitimate argument. Do you decide to stop your learning and make a whole lot of money more efficiently? Or do you push yourself and write fewer things that are better? That's a great way to put it. Because look at it from his perspective. He came into prominence in the early 1940s in Mostly Astounding magazine. He became one of the top-selling, most popular writers in the genre in that period of time. And there's always a question in my mind, having read the excellent book, Astounding, which talks about the history of all of those major figures from Astounding Magazine, John W. Campbell, Heinlein, Asimov, L. Ron Hubbard. And when you understand the relationship between Campbell and Asimov, where Campbell deliberately took Asimov under his wing to develop him as a writer, and what was Campbell all about? Science fiction idea stories. It was about the competent man and problem solving and science, science fiction. And Asimov was the perfect vessel for that because what Asimov had to offer more than anything else was interesting ideas. And again, questions that could be raised, how much early on anyway of those ideas were actually his or were they ideas that John Campbell handed to him and then he developed? That's a major point, I think, of consideration but there's no question that he developed into a good enough writer on his own, independent of Campbell, to write some very good stuff over the years. But I think you're right. He would come up with interesting ideas. He would flesh them out. And that was good enough. And yeah. why wouldn't it? Because if you're one of the number one writers in your field, and people are just eating up everything you write, and you're being very well paid for it, and you're considered one of the deans of your profession, why would you change? Why would you try to push yourself? That's what artists do, but not all writers are artists. Yeah, yeah. Some writers are mercenaries, and some writers are smart guys who, you know, were nerds, and when they get a little bit of attention in their life, it's intoxicating. And that's going a little bit far, perhaps, in psychoanalyzing Isaac Asimov, but he had some significantly socially regressive 
characteristics throughout his life, not the least of which was his propensity to go around grabbing women's butts without their permission and writing a whole book about how that's the way to go. Did he? I don't remember the title of it. He wrote a book that touched on sex. Oh, was it called Asimov on Third Degree Sexual Assault? (laughs) Yes, I think that was the title in France. He basically defended the idea that, hey, if you are attracted to a woman, the best way to let her know is just go up and grab her. Kind of reminds me of a guy that I knew in the Navy, one of my crewmates, that when we would go out on liberty, we would try to avoid him. We'd see him walking down the street and we'd like almost literally run away because we didn't want to be anywhere near him because his favorite thing was he would walk up to strange women in the supermarket or bar or wherever and just walk up to them. And they could be like middle-aged moms and, you know, whoever. And he would just walk up to them and say, hey, would you like to... He explained it to us once. He says, yeah, nine out of ten times they swear at you or they slap you or they yell for help. But it's that one time out of ten that you hit and it makes it all worthwhile. There was a guy in college that did that exact same thing. He quoted different numbers, but it was the same idea. Fail 90% of the time, succeed 10%. Right. That's just socially regressive sexual behavior. You know, let's face it. He was the kind of guy who was a nerd as a teenager, married the first woman that ever said yes to him in bed. Then his fame gave him the ability to become more of a playboy. Right, right. Now, the one thing that saved... Asimov was, unlike John W. Campbell, who kind of degenerated into an outright racist later in his career, Asimov was always very progressive in his politics. So, you know, he was saying all the right things and espousing all the right causes throughout his adult life. And because he was so famous and sold so many books and was unrepentant and times were different, people overlooked the fact that he was sexually regressive. So kind of circling back to the point is, are you a writer or are you an artist? And I don't think he was ever an artist. Yeah. And that's okay. I am not one of these snobs that feels that every writer has to be an artist. I'm perfectly okay with a mercenary writer. If you say, I'm only in it for the money, and you go out there and you bust your butt, you write stuff that people enjoy, and you make a lot of money off of it, hey, good for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in any profession, you're going to have the artist type. You know, there's plenty of artist types that can be kind of overbearing in their own way, too. You know, people who are trashing other writers for not living up to their imagined standard. So, any other thoughts or disparagements of Asimov the writer? I have a massive disparagement, and it's probably childish for me to bring it up. He made a big deal out of having written... Two, three, four hundred books. And I have personal knowledge that a large number of those books were never written by him. Because he counted things like Isaac Asimov's Encyclopedia of the Strange or whatever topic it was. Those collections were all deals with publishers. He sold his name and then the editorial staff wrote the book. My mother has written content that is credited to Isaac Asimov in that very way. You know, I really hate that phenomenon. That's very prevalent now, where you have all these best-selling authors, you know, hoard out their name, and they hire some young ghostwriter to come in and write their latest novel. You know, they slap their name on the cover. It says, you know, 
James Patterson with Clive Jones. The actual writer's name is in small type at the bottom of the cover, and his name is in big, bold letters on the top to sell the books. I hate that. I think it's cheating. I think it's dishonest. I would be okay if it was James Patterson Presents, and then he credits the actual writer as being the author of the book. Yeah, he gives full credit to the writer, and he's just saying he's vetted it as good, like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Or like what the author of the Jack Reacher books did. He got to a point where he didn't want to do it anymore, or he's burned out, or he just wasn't feeling the magic anymore. So he got his brother to come in and write the books. I think that's great. In this case, you're selling a character, Jack Reacher. So more than the name of the author, in this particular case, you put the big, bold letters of Jack Reacher on the top. And if it's written by somebody else other than the original writer, or better yet, somebody with the same last name, fans are going to be okay with that. And I don't think you're being dishonest in that case. I think James Patterson and some of these other people are just totally dishonest to their fans. Clive Custler is another one who's done that. They may have nothing at all to do with the book. They may not have even come up with the idea. I would bet that they have nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's just wrong. Yeah, there's another sin that we can lay at the feet of Isaac Asimov, I guess. But maybe it's a little more understandable in a science book than it is in a work of fiction. I'm not sure. So speaking back to Foundation, I have a reader suggestion. If you like Foundation, try Lest Darkness Fall by L. Sprague de Camp. This was a big deal at the time, 1941. I think it's largely forgotten now. A newspaper reporter, and newspaper reporter, Uh wakes up in ancient Rome a few years before the fall of Rome. And he begins this plan of how to keep the empire together. What can this one person do to stop the fall of Rome? His main way of doing it is by starting a newspaper. But I won't give any more of the plot. Does the story tell how history was changed because of what he did? No, no. It only sticks with him. And the book ends with him being there and continuing to do stuff. I, I don't want to give it away. That's a fascinating concept, I think, to do a alternate history, future history. For instance, let's, I'm just off the top of my head, do a, a story that spans 500 years, starting with the Nazis winning World War II or the South winning the Civil War. I will suggest bring the Jubilee by, I think it was more. I'm not 100% sure of that. It starts out in a world where the South won the Civil War. Does it go into the future at all? It takes place in the present. Oh, so like the 20th century. Yes, but then someone goes back in time to the Civil War and changes things. Oh, okay. I'm just thinking that sort of an epic span of history, starting with a major change in history to create an alternative history. Well, what about the man in the high castle? I don't know if that's an epic enough one, because that only... How far in the future does that go? I don't think it goes really uh, far You're right future. about that. It doesn't. It, See, that's it's what I'm basically saying, now. Is adding to that existing genre, which is a completely separate genre in science fiction, adding time and scope to something like that, like going a thousand years into the future following one of these major historical alternatives... I think that would be a cool idea for a series. You'd have to keep expanding the change. I think the key for something like that is you'd have to pick exactly the right moment in time to create the change that would filter out over a thousand years. For instance, if it's Hitler winning the war, 
Hitler gets the atom bomb first. Yeah. So that right there is you're bringing technology and science into the story. So it's 1946, and Hitler has nuked New York City and London and has command of the entire world, and he has nuclear weapons, shortly followed by intercontinental ballistic missiles. And that's how the Third Reich continues to control the world, is that they've got a major leap forward in technology that nobody else can catch up with. That's science fiction, my friend, because it's about technology. It's having a technological edge that lasts for centuries. I want a book on Nazi Mars. Not the, uh, what's that stupid movie where the Nazis are on the moon? What the hell was that? Oh, well, you know, that was supposed to be... Iron... Iron Sky. Iron Sky. And you know, the first time I saw it, I just about had an aneurysm until I realized it was supposed to be satirical. Well, I knew it was supposed to be satirical. I got about 15 minutes into the movie and I had to turn it off because it was like fingernails on the chalkboard to me. You should see the sequel. It'd be a contest to see how far you get into it because it's worse. Let's do that. Let's make a pledge to each other that we're going to see how far we can get into it. And a prize goes to the winner. (laughs) Any other thoughts? I mentioned Less Darkness Fall, so I'm happy. Okay. All right, well, that's it for episode 41. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.